Welcome to Flourish. I'm Diane Panadin, and you're in the right place if you're ready to create an inspired life. And we do so by working on our own personal development. So we can be strong role models for those we love and mentor. We are on chapter 12, week two in Psych 100 course from Queen's University. So let's not waste another minute and jump right in. Conditioning and learning. Basic principles of learning are always operating and always influencing human behavior. This module discusses the two most fundamental forms of learning, classical, Pavlovian, and instrumental, operant conditioning. Through them, we respectively learn to, one, associate stimuli in the environment, or two, our own behaviors with significant events such as rewards and punishment. The two types of learning have been intensively studied because they have powerful effects on behavior and because they provide methods that allow scientists to analyze learning processes rigorously. This module describes some of the most important things you need to know about classical and instrumental conditioning, and it illustrates some of the many ways they help us understand normal and disordered behavior in humans. The module concludes by introducing the concept of observational learning, which is a form of learning that is largely distinct from classical and operant conditioning. Learning objectives to keep in the back of your mind. Distinguish between classical conditioning and instrumental conditioning. Understand some important facts about each that tells us how they work. Understand how they work separately and together to influence human behavior in the world outside the laboratory. And students will be able to list the four aspects of observational learning according to social learning theory. As mentioned before, I am a student, not a teacher, and I'm simply sharing my journey with you online. Here we go. Two types of conditioning. Although Ivan Pavlov won a Nobel Prize for studying digestion. He is much more famous for something else, working with a dog, a bell, and a bowl of saliva. Many people are familiar with the classic study of Pavlov's dog, but rarely do they understand the significance of its discovery. In fact, Pavlov's work helps explain why some people get anxious just looking at a bus why the sound of a morning alarm is so hated, and even why we swear off certain foods we've only tried once. Classical or Pavlovian conditioning is one of the fundamental ways to learn about the world around us, but it is far more than just a theory of learning. It is also arguably a theory of identity. For once you understand classical conditioning, you'll recognize that your favorite music, clothes, even political candidate, might all be a result of the same process that makes a dog drool at the sound of a bell. And that's my dog walking around you here in the background, so I'm sorry. <laughs> around the turn of the 20th century, scientists who were interested in understanding the behavior of animals and humans began to appreciate the importance of two very basic forms of learning. One, which was first studied by the Russian psychologist Ivan Pavlov, is known as classical or Pavlovian conditioning. In his famous experiment, Pavlov rang a bell and then gave a dog some food. After repeating this pairing multiple times, the dog eventually treated the bell as a signal for food and began salivating in anticipation of the treat. 
this kind of result has been reproduced in the lab using a wide range of signals. For example, tones, light, taste, settings, paired with many different events besides food. For example, drugs, shocks, and illness. <laughs> we now believe that this same learning process is engaged, for example, when humans associate a drug they've taken with the environment in which they've taken it. When they associate a stimulus, for example, a symbol for a vacation, like a big beach towel, with an emotional event, like a burst of happiness, and when they associate the flavor of food with getting food poisoning. Although classical conditioning may seem old or too simple a theory, it is still widely studied today for at least two reasons. First, it is a straightforward test of associative learning that can be used to study other, more complex behaviors. Second, because classical conditioning is always occurring in our lives, its effects on behavior have important implications for understanding normal and disordered behavior in humans. In a general way, classical conditioning occurs whenever neutral stimuli are associated with psychologically significant events. With food poisoning, for example, although having fish for dinner may not normally be something to be concerned about, i.e. a neutral stimuli, if it causes you to get sick, you will now likely associate that neutral stimuli, the fish, with the psychologically significant event of getting sick. These paired events are often described using terms that can be applied to any situation. The dog food in Pavlov's experiment is called the unconditioned stimulus because it elicits an unconditioned response. That is, without any kind of training or teaching, the stimulus produces a natural or instinctual reaction. In Pavlov's case, the food, the unconditioned stimulus, automatically makes the dog drool, the response. Other examples of unconditioned stimulus include loud noises that startle us, or a hot shower that produces pleasure, or the other hand, a conditioned stimulus produces a conditioned response. A conditioned stimulus is a signal that has no importance to the organism until it is paired with something that does not have importance. For example, in Pavlov's experiment, the bell is conditioned stimulus. Before the dog had learned to associate the bell, the conditioned stimulus, with the presence of food, hearing the bell means nothing to the dog. However, after multiple pairings of the bell with the presentation of food, the dog starts to drool at the sound of the bell. This drooling in response to the bell is the conditioned response. Although it can be confusing, the conditioned response is almost always the same as the unconditioned response. However, it is called the conditioned response because it is conditional on, or depends on, being paired with the conditional stimulus, for example, the bell. To help make this clear, consider becoming really hungry when you see the logo of a fast food restaurant. There is a good chance you'll start salivating although it is the actual eating of the food that normally produces the salivation, simply seeing the restaurant's logo can trigger the same reaction. Another example you are probably very familiar with involves your alarm clock. 
if you're like most people waking up early usually makes you unhappy. <laughs> In this case, waking up early produces a natural sensation of grumpiness. Rather than waking up early on your own, though, you likely have an alarm clock that plays a tone to wake you. Before setting your alarm to that particular tone, let's imagine you had a neutral feeling about it, i.e. the tone had no prior meaning for you. However, now that you use it to wake up every morning, you psychologically pair the tone with your feeling of grumpiness in the morning. After enough pairings, this tone will automatically produce your natural response of grumpiness. Thus, this linkage between the unconditioned stimulus, waking up early, and the conditioned stimulus, the tone, is so strong that the unconditioned response, being grumpy, will become a conditioned response. <laughs> Hearing the tone at any point in the day, whether waking up or walking down the street, will make you grumpy. Modern studies of classical conditioning use a very wide range of CS and US and measure a wide range of conditional responses. Although classical conditioning is a powerful explanation for how we learn many different things, there's a second form of conditioning that also helps explain how we learn. First studied by Edward Thorndike and later extended by B.F. Skinner, this second type of conditioning is known as instrumental or operant conditioning. Operant conditioning occurs when a behavior, as opposed to a stimulus, is associated with the occurrence of a significant event. In the best known example, a rat in a laboratory learns to press a lever in a cage to receive food. Because the rat has no natural association between pressing a lever and getting food, the rat has to learn this connection. At first, the rat may simply explore its cage, climbing on top of things, boring under things in search of food. Eventually, while poking around its cage, the rat accidentally presses the lever and a food pellet drops out. This voluntary behavior is called an operant behavior because it operates on the environment, i.e. it is an action that the animal itself makes. Now, once the rat recognizes that it receives a piece of food every time it presses the lever, the behavior of lever pressing becomes reinforced. That is, the food pellets serve as reinforcers because they strengthen the rat's desire to engage with the environment in this particular manner. In a parallel example, imagine that you're playing a street racing video game. As you drive through one city course multiple times, you try a number of different streets to get to the finish line. On one of these trials, you discover a shortcut that dramatically improves your overall time. You have learned this new path through operant conditioning. That is by engaging with your environment, operant responses, you performed a sequence of behaviors that, that was positively reinforced, i.e. you found the shortest distance to the finish line. And now that you've learned how to drive this course, you will perform the same sequence of driving behaviors, just as the rat presses on the lever, to receive your reward of a faster finish. Operant conditioning research studies how the effects of behavior influence the probability that it will occur again. For example, the effects of the rat's lever pressing behavior, i.e. receiving a food pellet, 
influences the probability that it will keep pressing the lever. For according to Thorndike's law of effect, when a behavior has a positive, satisfying effect or consequence, it is likely to be repeated in the future. However, when a behavior has a negative, painful, annoying consequence, <laughs> it is less likely to be repeated in the future. Effects that increase behaviors are referred to as reinforcers, and effects that decrease them are referred to as punishers. An everyday example that helps illustrate operant conditioning is striving for a good grade in class which could be considered a reward for students, i.e. it produces a positive emotional response. In order to get that reward, similar to the rat learning to press the lever, the student needs to modify their behavior. For example, the student may learn that speaking up in class gets him or her participation points, a reinforcer, so the student speaks up repeatedly. However, the student also learns that she or he shouldn't speak up about just anything. Talking about topics unrelated to school actually costs points. Therefore, through the students' freely chosen behaviors, they learn which behaviors are reinforced and which are punished. An important distinction of operant conditioning is that it provides a method for studying how consequences influence voluntary behavior. The rat's decision to press the lever is voluntary in the sense that the rat is free to make and repeat that response whenever it wants. Classical conditioning, on the other hand, is just the opposite. Depending instead on involuntary behavior, for example, the dog doesn't choose to drool, it just does. So whereas the rat must actively participate and perform some kind of behavior to attain its reward, the dog in Pavlov's experiments is a passive participant. One of the lessons of operant conditioning research then is that voluntary behavior is strongly influenced by its consequences. They have a little illustration, if you're listening to this online, of a bell associated with cheese and a rat associated with cheese. And the bell is a classical or Pavlovian condition, and the rat is the instrumental or operant conditioning. So the illustration summarizes the basic elements of classical and instrumental conditioning. The two types of learning differ in many ways. However, modern thinkers often emphasize the fact that they differ, as illustrated with the bell and the rat, in what is learned. In classical conditioning, the animal behaves as if it has learned to associate stimulus with a significant event. In operant conditioning, the animal behaves as if it has learned to associate a behavior with a significant event. Another difference is that the response in classical situation, salivating, is elicited by a stimulus that comes before it, whereas the response in the operant case is not elicited by any particular stimulus. Instead, operant responses are said to be emitted. The word emitted further conveys the idea that operant behaviors are essentially voluntary in nature. Understanding classical and operant conditioning provides psychologists with many tools for understanding learning and behavior in the world outside the lab. This is in part because the two types of learning occur continuously throughout our lives. It has been said that much like the laws of gravity, the laws of learning are always in effect. Useful things to know about classical conditioning. 
classical conditioning has many effects on behavior. A classical CS does not merely elicit a simple unitary reflex. Pavlov emphasized salivating because that was the only response he measured. But his bell almost certainly elicited a whole system of responses that functioned to get the organisms ready for the upcoming U.S., the food. For example, in addition to salivation, CSs such as the bell that signal that food is near also elicit the secretion of gastric acid, pancreatic enzymes, and insulin, which gets blood glucose into cells. All of these responses prepare the body for digestion. Additionally, the CS elicits approach behavior and a statement of excitement. And presenting a CS for food can also cause animals whose stomachs are full to eat more food if it is available. In fact, food CSs are so prevalent in modern society, humans are likewise inclined to eat or feel hungry in response to cues associated with food, such as the sound of a bag of potato chips opening, a sight of a well-known logo, or the feel of the couch in front of the television. <laughs> Classical conditioning is also involved in other aspects of eating. Flavors associated with certain nutrients, such as sugar or fat, can become preferred without arousing any awareness of the pairing. For example, protein is a, is a U.S. that your body automatically craves more of once you start to consume it. You are. Since proteins are highly concentrated in meat, the flavor of meat becomes a CS or cue that proteins are on the way, which perpetuates the cycle of craving for yet more meat. This automatically body reaction now a CR. In a similar way, flavors associated with stomach pain or illness become avoided and disliked. For example, a person who gets sick after drinking too much tequila may acquire a profound dislike of the taste and order, odor of tequila, a phenomenon called taste aversion conditioning. The fact that flavors are often associated with so many consequences of eating is important for animals, including rats and humans, that are frequently exposed to new foods, and it is clinically relevant. For example, Drugs used in chemotherapy often make cancer patients sick. As a consequence, patients often acquire aversions to food eaten just before treatment, or even aversions to such things as waiting rooms of the chemotherapy clinic itself. Classical conditioning occurs with a variety of significant events. If an experimenter sounds a tone just before applying a mild shock to a rat's feet, the tone will elicit fear or anxiety after one or two pairings. Similar fear conditioning plays a role in creating many anxiety disorders in humans, such as phobias and panic disorders, where people associate cues, such as closed spaces or a shopping mall, with panic or other emotional trauma. Here, rather than a physical response, the CS, which is a conditioned stimulus, triggers an emotion. Another interesting effect of classical conditioning can occur when we ingest drugs. That is, when a drug is taken, it can be associated with the cues that are present at the same time. For example, rooms, odors, drug paraphernalia. In this regard, if someone associates a particular smell with the sensation induced by the drug, whenever that person smells the same odor afterward, it may cue responses, physical and or emotional, related to taking the drug itself 
but drug cues have an even more interesting property. They elicit responses that often compensate for the upcoming effect of the drug. For example, morphine itself suppresses pain. However, if someone is used to taking morphine, a cue that signals the drug is coming soon can actually make the person more sensitive to pain because the person knows a pain suppressant will soon be administered. The body becomes more sensitive, anticipating that the drug will soon take care of it. Remarkably, such condition compensatory responses in turn decrease the impact of the drug on the body because the body has become more sensitive to pain. This condition compensatory response has many implications. For instance, a drug user will be most tolerant to the drug in the presence of cues that have been associated with it because such cues elicit compensatory responses. As a result, overdose is usually not due to an increase in dosage, but to taking the drug in a new place without the familiar cues, which would have otherwise allowed the user to tolerate the drug. Condition compensatory responses, which include heightened pain sensitivity and decreased body temperature, among others, might also cause discomfort, thus motivating the drug user to continue usage of the drug to reduce them. This is one of several ways classical conditioning might be a factor in drug addiction and dependence. A final effect of classical cues is that they motivate ongoing operant behavior. For example, if a rat has learned via operant conditioning that pressing a lever will give it a drug, in the presence of cues that signal the drug is coming soon, like the sound of the lever squeaking, the rat will work harder to press the lever than if those cues weren't present, i.e. there is no squeaking level sound. Hmm. Similarly, in the presence of food-associated cues, example smells, a rat or an overeater will work harder for food. And finally, even in the presence of negative cues, like something that signals fear, a rat, a human, or any other organism will work harder to avoid those situations that might lead to trauma. Classical CSs, conditioned stimulus, thus have many effects that can contribute to significant behavioral phenomena. The learning process. As mentioned earlier, classical conditioning provides a method for studying basic learning processes. Somewhat counterintuitively, though, studies show that pairing conditioned stimulus and unconditioned stimulus together is not sufficient for an association to be learned between them. Consider an effect called blocking. In this effect, an animal first learns to associate one conditioned stimulus, call it stimulus A, with an unconditioned stimulus. They have an illustration here of a uh, sound of a bell, which is a stimulus A, is paired with the presentation of food. Once this association is learned, in a second phase, a second stimulus, stimulus B, is presented alongside the stimulus A, such that the two stimuli are paired with the unconditioned stimulus together. 
In the illustration, a light is added and turned on at the same time the bell is rung. However, because the animal has already learned the association between stimulus A, the bell, and the food, the animal doesn't learn any an association between stimulus B, the light, and the food. That is the conditioned response only occurs during the presentation of stimulus A because the earlier conditioning of A blocks the conditioning of B when B is added. So adding the light doesn't do anything. <laughs> the reason, stimulus A already predicts the unconditioned stimulus. So the unconditioned stimulus is not surprising when it occurs with stimulus B. Learning depends on such a surprise or a discrepancy between what occurs on a conditioning trial and what is already predicted by cues that are present on the trial. To learn something through classical conditioning, there first must be some prediction error or the chance that conditioned stimulus won't lead to the expected outcome. With the example of the bell and the light, because the bell always leads to the reward of food, there's no prediction error that the addition of the light helps to correct. However, the researcher suddenly requires that the bell and the light both occur in the order to receive the food. The bell alone will produce a prediction error that the animal has to learn. Blocking and other related effects indicate that the learning process tends to take in the most valid predictors of significant events and ignore the less useful ones. This is common in the real world. For example, imagine that your supermarket puts big star-shaped stickers on products that are on sale. Quickly, you learn that items with big star-shaped stickers are cheaper. However, imagine you go into a similar supermarket that not only uses these stickers, but also uses bright orange price tags to denote a discount. Because of blocking, i.e. you already know that the star-shaped stickers indicate a discount, you don't have to learn the color system too. The star-shaped stickers tells you everything you need to know, i.e. there's no prediction error for the discount, and thus the color system is irrelevant. Classical conditioning is strongest if the CS, the conditioned stimulus, and US, unconditioned stimulus, are intense or salient. It is also best if the conditioned stimulus and the unconditioned stimulus are relatively new and the organism hasn't been frequently exposed to them before. And it is especially strong if the organism's biology has prepared it to associate a particular conditioned stimulus and unconditioned stimulus. For example, rats and humans are naturally inclined to associate an illness with a flavor rather than with a light or a tone because foods are most commonly experienced by taste. If there is a particular food that makes us ill, associating the flavor rather than the appearance, which may be similar to other foods, with the illness will more greatly ensure we avoid that food in the future and thus avoiding getting sick. This sort of tendency, which is set up by evolution, is called preparedness. There are many factors that affect the strength of classical conditioning, and these have been the subject of much research and theory. Behavioral neuroscientists have also used classical conditioning to investigate many of the basic brain processes that are involved in learning. 
erasing classical learning. <laughs> yeah. After conditioning, the response to the conditioned stimulus can be eliminated if the conditioned stimulus is presented repeatedly without the unconditioned stimulus. This effect is called extinction, and the response is said to become extinguished. For example, if Pavlov kept ringing the bell but never gave the dog any food afterward, eventually the dog's conditioned response, drooling, would no longer happen when it heard the conditioned stimulus, the bell, because the bell would no longer be a predictor of food. Extinction is important for many reasons. For one thing, it is the basis for many therapies that clinical psychologists use to eliminate maladaptive and unwanted behaviors. Take the example of a person who has debilitating fears of spiders. One approach might include systematic exposure to spiders, whereas initially the person has a conditioned response, extreme fear, every time they see the conditioned stimulus, the spider. After repeatedly being shown pictures of spiders in neutral conditions, pretty soon the conditioned stimulus no longer predicts the conditioned response. The person doesn't have a fear reaction when seeing spiders, having learned that spiders no longer serve as a cue for that fear. Here, the repeated exposure to spiders without an adverse Consequence causes extinction. Psychologists must accept one important fact about extinction, however. It does not necessarily destroy the original learning. For example, imagine you strongly associate the smell of chalkboards with the agony of middle school detention. Now imagine that after years of encountering chalkboards, the smell of them no longer recalls the agony of detention, an example of extinction. However, one day after entering a new building for the first time, you suddenly catch a whiff of a chalkboard and wham, the agony of detention returns. This is called spontaneous recovery, following a lapse in exposure to the conditioned stimulus after extinction has occurred. Sometimes re-exposure to the conditioned response, the smell of chalkboards, can evoke the conditioned response again, the agony of detention. Another related phenomenon is the renewal effect. After extinction, if the conditioned stimulus is tested in a new context, such as a different room or location, the conditioned response can also return. In the chalkboard example, the action of entering a new building, where you don't expect to smell chalkboards, suddenly renews the sensations associated with detention. These effects have been interpreted to suggest that extinction inhibits rather than erases the learned behavior, and this inhibition is mainly expressed in the context in which it is learned. This does not mean that extinction is a bad treatment for behavior disorders. Instead, clinicians can increase its effectiveness by using basic research on learning to help defeat these relapse effects. For example, conducting extinction therapies in contexts where patients might be most vulnerable to relapsing, for example, at work, might be a good strategy for enhancing the therapy's success. Useful things to know about instrumental conditioning. Most of the things that affect the strength of classical conditioning also affect the strength of instrumental learning, whereby we learn to associate our actions within their outcomes. 
As noted earlier, the bigger the reinforcer or punisher, the stronger the learning. And if an instrumental behavior is no longer reinforced, it will also be extinguished. Most of the rules of associative learning that apply to classical conditioning also apply to instrumental learning. But other facts about instrumental learning are also worth knowing. Instrumental responses come under stimulus control. As you know, the classic operant response in the laboratory is lever pressing in rats, reinforced by food. However, things can be arranged so that lever pressing only produces pellets when a particular stimulus is present. For example, lever pressing can be reinforced only when a light in the Skinner box is turned on. When the light is off, no food is released from lever pressing. The rat soon learns to discriminate between the light on and the light off conditions and presses the lever only in the presence of the light. Responses in light off are extinguished. In everyday light, think about waiting in the turn lane at a traffic light. Although you know that green means go, only when you have the green arrow do you turn. In this regard, the operant behavior is now said to be under stimulus control. And, as is the case with the traffic light, in the real world, stimulus control is probably the rule. The stimulus controlling the operant response is called a discriminative stimulus. It can be associated directly with the response or the reinforcer. However, it usually does not elicit the response the way a classical conditioned stimulus does. Instead, it is said to set the occasion for the operant response. For example, a canvas put in front of an artist does not elicit painting behavior or compel her to paint. It allows or sets the occasion for painting to occur. Stimulus control techniques are widely used in the laboratory to study perception and other psychological processes in animals. For example, the rat would not be able to respond appropriately to light on and life off conditions if it could not see the light. Following this logic, experiments using stimulus control methods have tested how well animals see colors, hear ultrasounds, and detect magnetic fields. That is, researchers pair these discriminative stimuli with those they know the animals already understand, such as pressing the lever. In this way, the researchers can test if the animals can learn to press the lever only when an ultrasound is played, for example. These methods can also be used to study higher cognitive processes. For example, pigeons can learn to pack at different buttons in a Skinner box when pictures of flowers, cars, chairs, or people are shown on a miniature TV screen. Pecking button one and no other is reinforced in the presence of a flower image, button two in the presence of a chair image, and so on. Pigeons can learn the discrimination readily and under the right conditions will even peck the correct buttons associated with pictures of new flowers, cars, chairs, and people they've never seen before. The birds have learned to categorize the sets of stimuli. Stimulus control methods can be used to study how such categorization is learned. Operant conditioning involves choice. 
Another thing to know about operant conditioning is that the response always requires choosing one behavior over others. The student who goes to the bar on Thursday night chooses to drink instead of staying at home and studying. The rat chooses to press the lever instead of sleeping or scratching its ear in the back of the box. The alternative behaviors are each associated with their own reinforcers, and the tendency to perform a particular action depends on both the reinforcers earned for it and the reinforcers earned for its alternatives. To investigate this idea, choice has been studied in the Skinner box by making two levers available for the rat, or two buttons available for the pudgeon, each of which has its own reinforcement or payoff rate. A thorough study of choice in situations like this has led to a rule called quantitative law of effect, which can be understood without going into quantitative detail. The law acknowledges the fact that the effects of reinforcing one behavior depends crucially on how much reinforcement is earned for the behavior's alternatives. For example, if a pigeon learns that pecking one light will reward two food pellets, whereas the other light only rewards one, the pigeon will only peck the first light. However, what happens if the first light is more strenuous to reach than the second one? Will the cost of energy outweigh the bonus of food, or will the extra food be worth the work? In general, a given reinforcer will be less reinforcing if there are many alternative reinforcers in the environment. For this reason, alcohol, sex, or drugs may be less powerful reinforcers if the person's environment is full of other sources of reinforcement, such as achievement at work or love from family members. Cognition in instrumental learning. Modern research also indicates that reinforcers do more than merely strengthen or stamp in the behaviors they are a consequence of, as was Thorndike's original view. Instead, animals learn about specific consequences of behavior and will perform a behavior depending on how much they currently want or value its consequence. This idea is best illustrated by a phenomenon called reinforcer devaluation effect. A rat is first trained to perform two instrumental actions, for example, pressing a lever on the left and on the right, each paired with a different reinforcer, for example, a sweet sucrose solution and a food pellet. At the end of this training, the rat tends to press both levers, alternating between the sucrose solution and the food pellet. In a second phase, one of the reinforcers, for example, the sucrose, is separately paired with illness. This conditions a taste aversion to the sucrose. In a final test, the rat is returned to the Skinner box and allowed to press either lever freely. No reinforcers are presented during this test i.e. no sucrose or food comes from pressing the levers, so behavior during testing can only result from the rat's memory of what it has learned earlier. Importantly, here the rat chooses not to perform the response that once produced the reinforcer that it now has an aversion to. For example, it won't press the sucrose lever. This means that the rat has learned and remembered the reinforcer associated with each response and can combine that knowledge with the knowledge that the reinforcer is now bad. 
reinforcers do not merely stamp in responses. The animal learns much more than that. The behavior is said to be goal-directed because it is influenced by the current value of its associated goal, i.e. how much the rat wants and doesn't want the reinforcer. Things can get more complicated, however, if the rat performs the instrumental actions frequently and repeatedly. That is, if the rat has spent many months learning the value of pressing each of the levers, the act of pressing them becomes automatic and routine. And here, this once goal-directed action, i.e. the rat pressing the lever for the goal of getting sucrose food, can become a habit. Thus, if a rat spends many months performing the lever-pressing behavior, turning such behavior into a habit, even when sucrose is again paired with illness, the rat will continue to press that lever. After all, the practice, the instrumental response, pressing the lever, is no longer sensitive to reinforcer devaluation. The rat continues to respond automatically, regardless of the fact that the sucrose from this lever makes it sick. Habits are very common in human experience and can be useful. You do not need to relearn each day how to make your coffee in the morning or how to brush your teeth. Instrumental behaviors can eventually become habitual, letting us get the job done while being free to think about other things. Putting classical and instrumental conditioning together. Classical and operant conditioning are usually studied separately but outside of the laboratory, they almost always occur at the same time. For example, a person who is reinforced for drinking alcohol or eating excessively learns these behaviors in the presence of certain stimuli, a pub, a set of friends, a restaurant, or possibly the couch in front of the TV. These stimuli are also available for association with the reinforcer. In this way, classical and operant conditioning are always intertwined. Generally speaking, any reinforced or punished operant response is paired with an outcome in the presence of some stimulus or set of stimuli. They have a figure online here that I'm going to try and uh, describe for you. The figure illustrates the types of associations that can be learned in this very general scenario. For one thing, the organism will learn to associate the response and the outcome R and O. This is instrumental conditioning. The learning process here is probably similar to classical conditioning with all its emphasis on surprise and prediction error. And as we discussed while considering the reinforcer devaluation effect, once R and O is learned, the organism will be ready to perform the response if the outcome is desired or valued. The value of the reinforcer can also be influenced by other reinforcers earned for other behaviors in the situation. These factors are at the heart of instrumental learning. Second, the organism can also learn to associate the stimulus with the reinforcing outcome, S to O. This is the classical conditioning component. And as we have seen, it can have many consequences on behavior. For one thing, the stimulus will come to evoke a system of response that help the organism prepare for the reinforcer, not shown in the figure. The drinker may undergo changes in body temperature. The eater may salivate and have an increase in insulin secretion. In addition, the stimulus will evoke approach. 
if the outcome is positive or retreat if the outcome is negative. Presenting the stimulus will also prompt the instrumental response. The third association in the diagram is the one between stimulus and the response, S to R. As discussed earlier, after a lot of practice, the stimulus may begin to elicit the response directly. This is habit learning, whereby the response occurs relatively automatically without much mental processing of the relation between the action and the outcome and the outcome's current value. So just imagine an, an inverse triangle and the arrows going from S to O, S to R, and R to O. But there's one more. The final link in the figure is between the stimulus and the response outcome associations. So stimulus to R to O. So basically the arrows in the middle of the triangle. More than just entering into a simple association with the R or the O, the response to the outcome. The stimulus can signal that the response to the outcome relationship is now in effect. That is what we mean when we say that the stimulus can set the occasion for the operant response. It sets the occasion for the response reinforcer relationship. Through this mechanism, the painter might begin to paint when given the right tools and the opportunity enabled by the canvas. The canvas theoretically signals that the behavior of painting will now be reinforced by positive consequences. The figure provides a framework that you can use to understand almost any learned behavior you observed in yourself, your family, or friends. Observational learning. Not all forms of learning are accounted for entirely by classical and operant conditioning. Imagine a child walking up to a group of children playing a game on the playground. The game looks fun, but it is new and unfamiliar. Rather than joining the game immediately, the child opts to sit back and watch the other children play around or two. Observing the others, the child takes note of the ways in which they behave while playing the game. By watching the behavior of the other kids, the child can figure out the rules of the game and even some strategies for doing well at the game. This is called observational learning. Observational learning is a component of the social learning theory, which posits that individuals can learn novel responses via observation of key others' behaviors. Observational learning does not necessarily require reinforcement, but instead hinges on the presence of others referred to as social models. Social models are typically of higher status or authority compared to the observer, examples of which include parents, teachers, and police officers. In the example here, the children who have already known how to play the game of chess could be thought of as being authorities and are therefore social models, even though they are the same age as the observer. By observing how the social models behave, an individual is able to learn how to act in a certain situation. Other examples of observational learning might include a child learning to place her napkin in her lap by watching her parents at the dinner table, or a customer learning where to find the ketchup and mustard after observing other customers at a hot dog stand. Bandura theorizes that 
observational learning process consists of four parts. The first is attention, as quite simply, one must pay attention to what he or she is observing in order to learn. The second part is retention. To learn, one must be able to retain the behavior she or he is observing in memory. The third part of observational learning, initiation, acknowledges that the learner must be able to execute or initiate the learned behavior. And lastly, the observer must possess the motivation to engage in observational learning. In our vignette, the child must want to learn how to play the game of chess in order to properly engage in observational learning. Researchers have conducted countless experiments designed to explore observational learning, the most famous of which is Albert Bandura's Bobo doll experiment. In this experiment, Bandura had children individually observe an adult social model interact with a clown doll, Bobo. For one group of children, the adult interacted aggressively with Bobo, punching it, kicking it, throwing it, and even hitting it in the face with a toy mallet. <gasps> Another group of children watched the adult interact with the toys, displaying no aggression towards Bobo. In both instances, the adult left, and the children were allowed to interact with Bobo on their own. Bandura found that children exposed to the aggressive social model were significantly more likely to behave aggressively toward Bobo, hitting and kicking him, compared to those exposed to the non-aggressive model. The researchers concluded that the children in the aggressive group used their observations of the adult social model's behavior to determine that aggressive behavior towards Bobo was acceptable. While reinforcement was not required to elicit the children's behavior in Bandera's first experiment, it is important to acknowledge that consequences do play a role within observational learning. A future adaptation of this study demonstrated that children in the aggression group showed less aggressive behavior if they witnessed the adult model receive punishment for aggressing against Bobo. Bandura referred to this process as vicarious reinforcement as the children did not experience the reinforcement or punishment directly, yet were still influenced by observing it. In conclusion, we have covered three primary explanations on how we learn to behave and interact with the world around us. Considering your own experiences, how well do these theories apply to you? Maybe when reflecting on your personal sense of fashion, you realize that you tend to select clothes others have complimented you on, operant conditioning. Or maybe thinking back to a new restaurant you tried recently, you realize you chose it because it's commercial play happy music, classical conditioning. Or maybe you are now always on time with your assignments because you saw how others were punished when they were late. <laughs> Observational learning. Regardless of the activity, behavior, or response, there's a good chance your decision to do it can be explained based on one of the theories presented in this module. Hey, so what did you think about that? Really quite fascinating. And I think I really enjoyed, and I hope you watch this on YouTube, I enjoyed the, the visuals that they used in this chapter. It really helped me understand better the big picture. Well, if you like the show, share it with someone you know. and share something in the comments. I would love to hear how you learn 
to learn and live a more inspired life.